What's up guys? Welcome back to Dr. Z, a world never mentioned. And yeah, I know it's been a while. Uh, I finally finished the dreaded college application grind, and now I'm just ready to enjoy the rest of my senior year before I have to go to, you know, college. Also, as COVID restrictions have become a lot more lenient, I feel lucky enough to actually have a senior year that isn't through a bunch of black Zoom screens. However, as of right now, I'm not sure how long this lifestyle will remain, considering there are over 30 positive cases in my school at the moment. Speaking of COVID, the booster shots just come out, and I actually plan on getting boosted this week. And also there is the Omicron variant that has been reported to WHO that originated in South Africa from since like the end of November. And it's been reported that the symptoms are a lot more mild, but overall it's way more contagious. So I guess that's just another thing to look out for as winter break approaches. Anyway, for those of you who are new to my podcast, my name is Zeon, or otherwise would like to be referred to as Dr. Z. And the goal of my podcast is to engage my listeners about different regions around the world by immersing them with the history, politics, and culture. As we all know, our world is a melting pot of different cultures and people. And sometimes with the sensationalist media and politics influencing our mindsets, these true stories are being lost, and I want to bring them back to the spotlight. Today's episode is pointing a bit more in the direction of politics rather than culture, and I want to just discuss the migration and the refugee crisis. I've been taking an elective at school called Global Issues, where we the students get to set the pathway of what we will learn based on some of the global issues we consider to be the most pressing. It's currently my favorite class right now, and one of the most fascinating topics we have been discussing and learning about is the refugee crisis. Our class has watched documentaries, we've watched TED Talks, and we've even read up on many articles, and the situation is just absolutely shocking. I'm currently scrolling through my notes right now that I've taken during the class, and I just found a stat that I feel quite sums up the situation. So based on this finding from the UNHCR, which is the UN Refugee Agency, 82.4 million people are currently displaced. Now, these refugees have been forced, not voluntarily, forced to flee their homes to escape war, violence, and persecution. Now, what do I mean when I talk about refugees? Like, what's the difference between a typical migrant and a refugee? Well, based on the definition drafted in the UN's 1951 convention, a refugee is someone who is outside their home country and unable to return due to well-founded fears of being persecuted. And this persecution may be due to a certain part of their background or political opinion, which is often related to what's going on with war and violence. Half of these refugees are children, with most of them not even having parents. And what do you think that could possibly lead to? Well, of course, child labor and sexual harassment, actions which we definitely do not condone or would be considered morally acceptable. And although most refugees live in cities, some refugees stay in refugee camps as their first stop. And on average, especially in the Middle East, these refugees stay in camps for almost 17 years. And that's how old I am right now. So it's kind of hard to believe. And they have to rebuild their lives in a foreign land in the face of xenophobia and racism. Now, before we discuss the specific refugee crises around the world, I want to bring up two documentaries that I really recommend to listeners. The first one being Salam Neighbor. Now, I've always been a fan of the documentaries that Chris Temple and Zach Ingrosky make together, but this one just hit different. The two of them visit a Jordanian refugee camp known as Zothary, 
which shelters 85,000 refugees mainly from Syria. Now, the refugee crisis in Syria is so extreme to the extent that this is probably the greatest refugee crisis since World War II. Now, Jordan, a small country in the Middle East, which is like the size of the state of Maine, has taken 1.4 million Syrians in the past four years. And Syrians have forcibly left their nations due to the extent of bombings, with 80% of Syrian infrastructure destroyed by the violence. The documentary examines the perspectives of professors, mothers, and children who are trying to make it financially work in the city, and even an elementary school kid within the camp, Raouf. And all of them, are, after three years of being there, are still struggling with what's going on in their homeland, mentally and physically. However, the best aspect of this documentary is the optimism portrayed by these refugees. They try their best to be as productive as possible, by working with what little they can. They try to get jobs and help the Jordanian community. And within the camp, there are 3,000 businesses. Women play a larger role with the fathers of the families still back in Syria. And they're basically making an opportunity to empower themselves within this crisis. These refugees in the end chose peace over war. And this dignity creates lasting harmony in a world full of violence. Additionally, another documentary I highly recommend is God Grew Tired of Us, which displays the struggles of South Sudani refugees who flee to Ethiopia and then Kakuma refugee camp in Kenya. And then they're resettled into the United States, which they earned the name of Lost Boys of Sudan. Whenever I think of migration, I think about the positives of embracing new opportunities in a country and avoiding the issues and chaos that they were being faced previously in their homeland. However, after watching the documentary, I realized that this isn't mainly true at all, actually. After hearing about the Lost Boys of Sudan, I witnessed them feeling homesick. I saw them facing racial stereotypes, and they had to live without their large families, which they usually have in Africa. They worked tirelessly with these wax schedules with no other thought about anything else but their community back in Kakuma. Many would believe that every single refugee or migrant who comes to America experience a better sense of life and freedom. However, all of that is somewhat true. Life for them was extremely tough for a while. Um, I'm sure when many people were watching this documentary, they must have laughed or found it funny when they were having a hard time navigating all the electricity and the TV and the showers and so on and so forth. But it kind of just comes to show that they seem to be perfectly content without it back in South Sudan. And then I also experienced a lot of emotions when watching this documentary. I felt empathetic towards their journeys to Ethiopia and Kakuma, where many died of starvation and had to endure lion and hyena attacks. I felt a bit outraged seeing how they had to change their lifestyle for others because people felt scared of them in groups. I felt empowered seeing how they went from struggling working class laborers to college level ad- educated activists, driven to improve the livelihoods of those who are still facing the ramifications of the violence in Sudan. And finally, I experienced joy seeing them reunite themselves with their families and successfully making use of their opportunity in the United States. Overall, this documentary was very special in a way, as we witnessed the experience of refugees after they entered a developed nation. So now that we have completed the introduction, let's actually get into the specific refugee crises that are going on around the world.
So as I was talking about before, refugees leave mainly due to violence, and that was the case here in Syria as well. To fully understand this crisis, you must go back to the Arab Spring protests back in 2011, when Middle Eastern populations rose up against their dictators, which was also the case in Syria. As a result, Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad tried to tam down the protests through the use of force. Assad planned to turn the protest movement from a political struggle, which his unpopular regime was doomed to lose, into a military one, where he could basically kill his way to victory. The grim way in which Assad implemented his plan, killing protesters until they were forced to pick up weapons in self-defense, got him the war he wanted. The Free Syrian Army was formed in July 2011 by defectors to Assad's regime to protect the protesters who were killed and retaliate against the regime. By January 2012, the Syrian uprising had devolved into a full-blown civil war, pitting the Free Syrian Army and other assorted rebel groups against Assad and his supporters. The resulting civil war has forced many to leave their homes, making this the largest refugee and displacement crisis of our time. About 6.8 million Syrians are refugees and asylum, asylum seekers, and another 6.7 million people are displaced within Syria. This means 13.5 million Syrians in total are forcibly displaced, more than half of the country's population, and nearly 11.1 million people in Syria need humanitarian assistance. And about half of those people affected by the Syrian refugee crisis are children. Schools, healthcare facilities, utilities, and water and sewage systems are damaged or destroyed. Ruins have surrounded historic landmarks and once bustling markets. As a result of the war, neighbors lost their social and business ties to their communities. Continued conflict has created economic despair. And besides the strain on families' ability to procure basic food rations and household supplies, the economic impact of the war continues to negatively impact ed um, education and child protection. Refugees, poverty, and unemployment have been exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic, as you can definitely see. And they've been traveling all over the world just for protection. There are 3.7 million refugees resi that reside in Turkey itself, and that's the largest refugee population worldwide. Within the small country of Lebanon, there are 855,000 refugees, making up one-eighth of the whole population. They live in tents with few legal opportunities to actually earn money, and they struggle to afford residency fees, rent, utilities, and they also have just, in general, not as much food access. There are 668,000 Syrian refugees that live in Jordan, another small country, which also has two refugee camps, the one I talked about in the documentary Zathari and Azraf as well, where aid groups have actually converted desert wastes into cities. Thousands of other refugees live in um, Iraq and Egypt as well. And Syrians have been trying to seek refugees, um, refuge everywhere, including Europe. So our next segment will be on how the EU has responded to the refugee crisis, which will have some of you quite shocked. So we see all these refugees fleeing to many countries around the world, many still living in poverty and struggling. However, a large population try their luck to make it to Western Europe, and as they enter through land borders or through sea travel, there's actually a harsh reality that occurs that keeps migrants out of these borders. Let's start with how the European Union treats migrants from Africa. In the past six years, the European Union, who were wary of the financial and political costs of receiving migrants from Sub-Saharan Africa, 
have created a shadow immigration system that stops them before they even enter Europe. It has equipped and trained the Libyan Coast Guard, a quasi-military organization that was linked to militias in the country to patrol the Mediterranean, and they would sabotage humanitarian rescue op- operations and capture migrants. The migrants are then detained indefinitely in a network of profit-making prisons run by the militias. And in September of this year, actually, around 6,000 migrants are being held, many of them in Al-Mabani international aid agencies, and an, array, and an array of abuses have been documented. Detainees were tortured with electric shocks, children were raped by guards, and families were extorted for ransom. Men and women were sold into forced labor. Now the EU did something they carefully considered and planned for many years. They created a hellhole in Libya with the idea of deterring people from heading to Europe. We see this happening in all countries that surround the EU, where countries trap migrants from entering Europe, and in return, these countries will be paid billions of dollars by the EU. For example, Turkey was paid 6 billion euros by the European Union for not allowing refugees to migrate, and it was very effective. Now, a different crisis has just taken place in the border between Poland and Belarus. The last dictator in Europe, which is in Belarus, called for migrants to go through Belarus in order to actually enter through the European Union border. But instead, he traps them at their border as a way to seek revenge at the EU due to their sanctions. So we see firsthand how the European Union has definitely exacerbated the migrant crisis, especially for refugees from war-torn nations like Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan who are eager to build better lives for themselves. So throughout this podcast, we examine the harsh reality migrants face. And despite the usual horrors of migrant treatment, it was enlightening to actually see how Colombia handled the same situation very differently with the Venezuelan refugees. And when we talk about global migration, it's usually caused by many factors, from civil wars to climate change to political um, divisions. Despite this, Venezuela's situation is the result of actually hyperinflation, which is the effect of the colossal economic mismanagement under President Nicolas Maduro. The country is currently experiencing economic collapse, with shops and businesses closed, people going hungry, and parents unable to provide medical care or vaccines for their children. As a result of the dire economic circumstances, a monthly salary could only buy one hot dog or box of cereal, and people would even make commodities out of the worthless Venezuelan bolivares, which is their currency. The fact that thousands of Venezuelans are fleeing to other Latin American countries has actually prompted most of these countries to thicken their borders and require documentation such as passports and stamped visas. Colombia, however, keeps its borders wide open, making it an attractive destination for refugees. I'm going to now paint a picture in your all's minds. Welcome to the bustling border town of Cocuta, where thousands of Venezuelans cross the Simón Bolívar International Bridge and you hear women yelling out compra cabello, which means we buy hair. As a means to make money, women will sell their hair, which seems similar to the way that Syrian refugees try to be productive while they were staying in Jordan. Welcome to the Colombian capital Bogota, where a refugee camp lies for Venezuelan migrants, and the government provides a range of services from legal assistance and psychological guidance to haircuts and manicures. Welcome to the typical Colombian neighborhood by the border, which represents how not only the government and politicians 
are providing for Venezuelans, but also the Colombian citizens themselves. And when asked why they would take it on other people's needs, when they have their own needs, a Colombian resident said that it may not be easy, but us Colombians are fighters, and I just love that spirit. When watching a video in my Global Issues class about this situation, I was captivated by what one of the Venezuelan citizens said in the camp in Bogota, which translated to, borders don't divide us. We have the same sky over our heads, and we want you to know that your flag is my flag. We want to say thank you, Colombia, and bless you, Colombia. Even more fascinating is the history behind the two South American nations, which used to be united under one entity, Gran Colombia. In the 80s and 90s, Colombia was experiencing some of its worst violence in its decades-long war with a rebel group called the FARC, which displaced more than 7 million people, more than any other modern war. Hundreds of thousands of those people fled to Venezuela, where the economy was actually thriving and the Venezuelans treated them very well and were very welcoming. Hence, it's kind of interesting how these current open borders not only represent an example of Colombian hospitality, but also are a way to give back to the Venezuelans for their generosity decades ago. A sign on the border displays, Welcome to Colombia. Colombia and Venezuela unite forever. However, with crimes being committed by Venezuelans, individuals are skeptical about how long this solidarity will last. So, however, even though there is this rise of skepticism, I just think that the existing efforts of Colombia helping Venezuela, which is a country in severe need, is actually a great story where everywhere else around the world, there are still refugees trying to find their way to a better life, while Colombia is actually already helping in that effort. Now we move on to Asia, where we're going to discuss the Rohingya refugee crisis. The Rohingyas are the most persecuted ethnic minority group in the world. In Myanmar's Rakhine state, thousands of Rohingya fled their homes because of violent attacks and serious human rights violations. To reach Bangladesh, many migrants walk through the jungles for days and traverse dangerous sea voyages across the Bay of Bengal. Almost 890,000 people have taken refuge in Cox Bazar, the world's largest refugee camp, which is located in Bangladesh. But who are the Rohingya people exactly? These people are a Muslim ethnic minority group have, who have lived in centuries in predominantly Buddhist Myanmar. Even though Rohingyas have lived in Myanmar for generations, they are not recognized as an official ethnic group and have been denied citizenship since 1982, making them the world's largest stateless population. Now, as a state population, Rohingyas are deprived of basic rights and protection, and they're extremely susceptible to exploitation SGBV, and abuse. In Myanmar, the Rohingya have suffered decades of violence, discrimination, and persecution. More than 700,000 people, half of them being children, fled Myanmar's Rakhine State in August 2017, when a massive wave of violence broke out. Entire villages were burned to the ground, thousands of families were killed or separated, and massive human rights violations were reported. And this nearly 890,000 Rohingya refugees are living at the Kutupalong and Nayapar refugee camps in the um, Bangladesh's Cox's Bazar region, which have grown to become the largest and most densely populated camps in the world. Now, it's also important to consider the fact that Bangladesh is already the most densely populated country in the world, and its geographic location makes the country very vulnerable to the monsoon season. 
In Bangladesh, the monsoon season lasts from June to October and brings heavy rainfall and strong winds, increasing the risk of flooding and landslides. In areas prone to landslides, Rohingya have built flimsy tents made of bamboo and tarps, which may not withstand torrential rain and strong winds. The rainy season also exacerbates the risk of disease such as hepatitis, malaria, dengue, and chikungunya. And in crowded camps that don't have proper water and sanitation facilities, which would put children and the elderly at particular risk. So hopefully today's episode was able to put in perspective how serious this refugee crisis actually is. Each of these stories outlines a different aspect of the refugee crisis. Politics is highlighted in the Syrian refugee crisis. Economics is highlighted in Venezuela. And religion plays a huge role in what's going on with Rohingya. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. And as always, we shall wrap up with a quote. And this one from the Tennessee Office for Refugees. To be called a refugee is the opposite of an insult. It is a badge of strength, courage, and victory. See you guys later on Dr. Z, A World Never Mentioned.